in the prologue of John's gospel, right at the beginning of, uh, of that account of the life and ministry of Jesus, the apostle declares Jesus to be the light of men, the true light which gives light to everyone. In one of the richest passages of high Christology, that is a doctrine of Christ, in all the New Testament, he depicts Christ as the source of life and being for all. And he pictures this life as a beam of light piercing the darkness. And yet, because of the tragedy of human sin, when Jesus, the true light, shone into the darkness, the darkness did not understand it. Indeed, the world to which he came did not know him. His very own people did not receive him. You see, light can bring about quite different responses in people. Or rather, to put it personally, depending on your situation, you will either welcome light as a gift or recoil from it as an intruder. On a long journey, for example, through a dark night, when you fear your eyes will fail for want of light, the sun peeking over the horizon at dawn is like breath in your lungs again. But in the darkened recesses of a bedroom where you've pulled the shades and hidden yourself beneath the covers because of a pounding headache, a ray of light piercing through your window feels not like life, but like death. Depending on where you are, light will be met with very different responses. And this interplay between light and dark and the conditions of soul that either welcome it or recoil from it are at the heart of our passage today in Ephesians 5. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn there now. Ephesians chapter 5. Just to give us a little bit of context before we read uh, our verses for today, remember that broadly speaking in the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 are a gospel foundation. This is uh, the, 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 the basis of Christian uh, belief and identity, right? The gospel of Christ, we've been brought to life uh, by grace through faith, through the working of the, of the Spirit of God made uh, into a new man and a new people of God. The the gospel foundation is laid in chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters 4 through 6 are gospel living. If this is the gospel we believe, then chapters 4 through 6 is the shape of the gospel as we live it out. This is how we live according to the gospel that we profess. And so these chapters, of course, are filled with instruction and exhortation and uh, commands, do this, don't do that, etc. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, Paul urged his Christian readers to live from their new identity in Christ, putting on the new man that's been remade after the image of God. And then at the end of chapter 4, verses 25 down through the beginning of, cha- of chapter 5, excuse me, yes, 4.25 through 5.2, he gave a community shape to that new man, showing us that the the living out of this new identity has a necessarily relational shape to it. In other words, God intended 
uh, salvation and sanctification to be a community project. And so the commands at the end of chapter 4 are all very community-oriented. And he urged us to cultivate love within the family of God by living with each other in patience and humility and honesty and peace. And today, he's basically going to tell us this. How can Christians walk in love? That's what he concluded with as we read last week through chapter 5, verse 2. The final exhortation there was, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And so the natural question that comes to our mind is, what does that mean? What does it look like? How do we walk together in love? And the answer to that question, as Paul unfolds it for us, is really all about light and dark. So let's read Ephesians 5. I'm going to begin in verse 1, just so we have the the flow there. And we'll read all the way down through verse 14, which is where we'll focus today. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There are three ways, Paul gives us, that we can walk in love. The first is this. Abandon the works of darkness. Walking in love as beloved children of God looks like this. Abandon the works of darkness. Verses 3 through 6 lay that out for us. And he begins here with a sort of triad of perversion. So there's three things here related to distortion and sin in human hearts and behavior that can even be, of course, seen and uh, partaken in by those who call themselves Christians, by those who profess to be believers in Jesus. And he urges us, of course, away from these things. So let's look at these three perversions, if you will. The first of them is sexual immorality. It comes from the Greek word porneia, which uh, may sound familiar to you. There are some, there's an English word and a derivative of it that come right from it. 
It's the King James always translates it as fornication, but really that's much too narrow for the way the word is actually used throughout the New Testament. It's a very broad word, um, really um, covering a whole host of sexual sins, including fornication, which is sexual activity before marriage, uh, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, and the like. So anything that we would see from God's word is an aberration from his design, God's design for human sexuality, would be covered under this porneia, this sexual immorality. It's a broad, uh, a broad word to describe the ways, the often creative ways, that human beings in their fallenness can devise to distort the purposes and plans of God as it relates to human sexuality. So sexual immorality. The second one is impurity. The word there, the Greek word there is akatharsia, which sounds a bit like our word catharsis, which means cleansing, right? Well, this is akatharsia, meaning without cleansing. That is literally unclean. Unclean. Paul often connects this word akatharsia with porneia. So in lists in the New Testament where he's writing about various sins to be condemned among the people of God and avoided by his people, uh, he often puts those two words together. For example, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21, Galatians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 5. In each of those cases and a few others, as he's listing sins, he puts right side by side sexual immorality and impurity. Which shows us that I think, at least in Paul's mind, impurity is connected to sexual immorality. So he sees those as sort of flip sides of the same coin. So he's probably dealing here with, uh, with sexual impurity. Again, impurity, uncleanness. This is th- something that God has given and we've taken it and abandoned his purpose for it and, and re, uh, reclaimed it, redefined it, reshaped it after our own... Um, desires fallen and distorted as they often are. And so immorality, impurity. And then the third of this triad of perversion is covetousness. Covetousness, which really means a greedy desire to have more, which might at first sound a little strange in the context of that list. And down in verse 5 actually gives us a little bit more of a clue to it where he says that a person who is covetous is an idolater. He says that is an idolater, right? So there's idolatry at the heart of covetousness. So if we're greedy for more, we want something that we don't have and we therefore are willing to, uh, to, to work and to plan and to labor for the sake of getting more of whatever it is, we're essentially saying there is, we're demonstrating in our hearts, there is a treasure that's more important to us than God, right? As Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. Well, you could say that is equally true about anything. You can't serve God and whatever else you would put in that category that takes up your time and affections and attention and resources to the detriment of your relationship with the Lord and your uh, efforts to, to please him. And so covetousness is idolatry, he says. But given the context, again, as there is this sort of theme of, of sexual impurity and immorality, I think that, uh, that covetousness here might actually imply greed for sexual gratification, 
more than what we are entitled to, if you will, more than what God has given, a sort of insatiable lust for more. And Paul points these things out, puts them really at the top of a list, so to speak, of things that are perversions and distortions among fallen humanity that should not even be named, he says, among the people of God. Should not even be named. Of course, that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about these things because Paul himself is talking about it here in naming them and urging us away from it. But the point is there should not be an association that people could make with the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, and these sins and these distortions and these perversions. And so when those things began to, uh, to, to be spoken of in the same context, because we see perhaps so much overlap between uh, those who profess faith in Christ and various aspects of this uh, impure and unholy uh, living, we have abandoned the, um, the calling that the Lord has placed in our lives. We're walking not in the spirit, but in the flesh, to borrow Paul's own language from uh, Galatians and Romans 8 and elsewhere. So this is a triad of perversion that he calls out here and says, this should not even be named among you. And then he gives us another triad of sorts regarding our speech, a triad of improper speech. So you'll notice in verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Again, which don't belong among the people of God. Though we may be prone to dismiss certain things as just locker room talk, or just boys being boys, or what have you, Paul tells us here, And the Holy Spirit would have us learn and remember this is not the way that the people of God are to speak. Filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. It is not proper among saints. They're out of place. And we're reminded that at the beginning of chapter 4, he told us, he called us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Right, And so... We remember who we are in Christ. We remember the incredible grace that he's poured out on us, the salvation that he's uh, purchased and provided for us. And now we think of the road that he's called us to walk on. He's called us to walk in in holiness, right? Sean read to us earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1, be holy as I am holy. That's what the Lord says. Be holy in all your conduct. So this is what we've been called to do. And both in our behaviors as we distort God's design for uh, sexuality and his purposes in those good gifts. And in our speech as we make jokes about things that really aren't funny. That really actually are offensive to our God. Or as we perhaps... Um, use words and language and um, have conversations that don't have the character of uh, Christian faith and spiritual fruit, he would call us here to remember the calling with which we've been called and to walk in a manner worthy of it. 
Abandoning the works of darkness means abandoning this triad of perversions and this triad of improper speech. To, to take care that we walk carefully and that we speak appropriately as those who represent Jesus Christ and his holiness. Well, he tells us very clearly what the fruit of these works of darkness is in verses 5 and 6, and it is not pretty. It is a somber picture. The fruit of the works of darkness, number 1, verse 5, is this. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You see that? You may be sure of this. Everyone who is, and then he lists in sort of person form, all of the same three sins that he started out with, right? Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, right? Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, these are not the only three sinful patterns that reveal someone's exclusion from God's kingdom. In fact, these sins show up among a longer list of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, where he also includes the unrighteous, the immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Pretty long list of things. Probably most of us, by the time you get to an end of a list like that, can go, yeah, I'm somewhere in there. All right, I can see myself somewhere, at least at heart, in, uh, in that list of, uh, of sins. And so he says, those who are these things, those who are sexually immoral, those who are impure, those who are covetous people, don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. This is serious. This is serious. No inheritance in the kingdom. And then secondly, he tells us in verse 6, the wrath of God. The wrath of God against sin is being stored up by these behaviors and these patterns of speech. The wrath of God is an unavoidable biblical reality. I say it's unavoidable, but there are those who try really hard to avoid it and talk like the Bible doesn't really mean what it says when it talks about God and his wrath. Or, well, God used to be mad in the Old Testament, but he's not mad anymore. Now he's nice. We have all kinds of goofy ways to try to explain around the wrath of God. But, brothers and sisters, the wrath of God is a real thing. And it is a fearful thing, the author of Hebrews tells us, to fall into the hands of the living God. His wrath is real. Those who have not been reconciled to God in Christ are currently under his wrath. The Bible tells us they live under his wrath. It's it's awaiting them. It's It's impending. And those who die in their sins, having never repented and trusted in Christ, will experience its full force in hell for eternity. The horror of this reality should grip us. It's hard. It's unpleasant. It's heavy. But it's real. Cancer is not pleasant. But if you pretend it's not there, it's not going to go well for you. The wrath of God is real, and it is being stored up to be poured out upon those who practice these kinds of sins with impunity, without repentance, without struggle, without, namely, resting in Christ 
for his grace. He told us back in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 that the, the sons of disobedience were by nature children of wrath. He said that of us, right? Of his readers, you used to be like this, right? You were uh, following the sons of disobedience and were by nature children of wrath. That is, we were storing up for ourselves wrath. Romans 2, 5 Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When God pours out his wrath upon sin, we may be inclined in our faulty view of rightness and wrongness and justice and injustice to think, man, he's really overreacting here. But Paul reminds us there that his judgment against sin is righteous. His judgment against sin is accurate. It's right. God's really the only being in all the universe who has a completely accurate understanding of how serious sin is, of how terrible its consequences, and how deserving of wrath it is. So though we may be inclined to to minimize it, to make ourselves feel a little bit better, or to make ourselves not look so strange to those around us who don't believe the same things that we do to hear us speaking about being punished for sins, the wrath of God is very real. So this is a real warning. If you go on giving yourself to patterns of sexual immorality, greed, and idolatry, and filthy, frivolous speech, you show by your fruit, or lack thereof, that you don't really belong to Christ, and that the wrath of God is coming. He says there in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, the sons of disobedience being this is who they are. Their identity is those who disobey, those who carry out these patterns of sin. And he's warning Christians, don't listen to the voices who will say to you, it's okay. Go on doing what you're doing. Live for the moment. Do what makes you happy. Don't listen to those voices, he says. They will deceive you because the wrath of God is coming. No matter how good you make yourself feel about your sin by denying reality, by putting your fingers in your ears and singing real loud so that you can't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, the wrath of God is waiting on the other side of it. Let no one deceive you. And that implies that there will be those, even within the Christian community, who will try to loosen these standards or lower the bar. Maybe in some days or or places, it's just something like, you know what, God will forgive you. He's very kind, so it's okay. You know, don't worry too much about sin. You know, I've heard so-called pastors say, like, we just don't really talk about sin because I don't make people feel bad. I can make them feel real good right now, but they're going to feel even worse on the day of judgment, I guarantee you, if you don't warn them of the wrath to come. Right? There will be those within the Christian community who try to minimize these things. Actually, maybe the more prevalent way of people in the Christian community, that is people who profess to be followers of Jesus and speak on his behalf, 
maybe the more prevalent way that this happens in our own day is actually the reversing of these biblical norms and commands and actually celebrating as good what the Bible calls evil. Like, like I just read to you a few minutes ago that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that, that men who practice homosexuality are among those who won't inherit the kingdom of God if they persist in their sin without repentance. But in our world, in our culture, we have this, we're expected to celebrate that. That's a good thing. God made you this way. God gave you those desires. Why would he possibly punish you for something that he put in you? Right? I know that you've heard it. It's very prevalent in our culture. That's, that's the more probably uh, clear and, and obvious way that in our time, those who call themselves Christians and speak publicly and teach people on his behalf do exactly what Paul is warning against here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I could stand up here all day long and say, you know what? I know the Bible says that this thing is wrong here, but like, I, that's not really true. And yet, it's, it's okay. That's empty words, because that ain't true. It means nothing. And I'm actually leading you astray by telling you, go ahead. Go ahead and indulge in what God calls evil, and let's call it good. That's a fearful thing. That's a fearful thing. So the fruits of darkness are separation from the kingdom and the wrath of God. Now let me just clarify here. This doesn't mean either that unbelievers who commit such sins are beyond the reach of God's saving grace in Christ. Praise God, his grace is big enough and strong enough and has a long enough arm to reach even the most sort of hardened and habitual of sinners. Nor does it mean that believers who fall into such behaviors will lose their secure position in Christ. We always have to wrestle with this tension a little bit when we have these strong warnings that come to us in, in the word of God. We take them seriously. We think that these warnings have teeth. But we don't think that it means that if we sin enough that God's grace stops, right? That we kind of meet the limit of what God will forgive. That's not the situation at all. Those who are in Christ have what is Christ's. His resources are ours. We're united to Christ. And therefore, we cannot be separated from him because we sinned too many times. That's not the, that's not the point. Rather, it means that by a habitual pattern of such sinful behavior, without repentance and struggle against sin, a person demonstrates himself to be unregenerated, despite professing to be a believer. I think that's the clearest way to see and understand this and, and warnings like this one. If we go on in these patterns of sin, making excuses for ourselves, making provisions for the flesh, not fighting against it, not being held accountable, not pursuing righteousness in its place, we really demonstrate that our hearts are not his. We didn't belong to him in the first place. And don't forget in the midst of it that the glorious good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for us to be saved from his wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 and 10 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Praise God 
There is an ark of safety in the Lord Jesus Christ, even amidst our own sin and brokenness, that when we trust in Him and turn to Him in repentance and faith, He will save us from His wrath. First way we walk in love is to abandon the works of darkness. Abandon the works of darkness. The second way we walk in love is to cultivate the fruit of light. To cultivate the fruit of light. Don't walk in darkness, walk in light. Verses 7 through 10 lays this out for us. Just to give you the the back half of verse 4, I read earlier that it says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Here, he also gives a a positive, something to put in its place. And maybe it's fitting for this week. He says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. No filthy talk, foolish talk, crude joking. Instead, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving replaces unwholesome, perverted speech. It is the antidote to corrupt patterns of speaking. When we name the manifold kindnesses of God in our lives, we, in essence, choke out the darkness and corruption that may otherwise spill from our own lips. Gratitude and thankfulness and speaking in thanksgiving is a direct response to these kinds of patterns of speech, these filthy and foolish patterns of of speaking. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. When we choose to use our tongues to bless the Lord rather than curse others, remember James 3, verses 9 and 10, we strike a blow to the power of darkness in our hearts. Let's try to remember that around our restricted Thanksgiving tables this Thursday. As you name the blessings of God and return praise to Him, you're engaging in a powerful spiritual attack against the forces of darkness and against the darkness of your own heart. It's very easy for us to turn the other way, to speak foolishly, ungratefully. No filthy talk, rather let there be thanksgiving. He also warns us in verse 7, and in, in the cultivating of the fruit of light, don't become partners with the sons of disobedience. He said at the end of verse 6 that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And so verse 7, therefore, do not become partners with them. With whom? With the sons of disobedience. That is, those who are practicing these sins and these patterns of speech and upon whom the wrath of God is coming. Don't be partners with them. Don't join them in what they're doing. Don't give in to peer pressure. Heard that phrase a lot of times growing up. Usually had to do with just saying no or something like that. But there is a real pressure when we're around others who are sinning and seem to be having a good time doing it. There could be a real pressure. Well, you know, maybe I'll just... I don't want to seem weird. I don't want to offend them or make the, situ- the, the evening uncomfortable. So I'll just sort of go along with it. No. Don't become partners with them. Perhaps even with those who spread the empty words that are leading some astray. You become partners with them by actually beginning to parrot the same talking points and the same values. You know what? It's really not all that bad. You know what? God gave you that desire. It can't be, it can't be sinful. 
do not become partners with them. And so he urges us to reject those false teachings. And this is really important. Here's the basis upon which we're to reject this false teaching. Verse 8, it's not who you are anymore. You see that in the middle of verse 8? At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is who you are. Yeah, you used to be. He doesn't just say you used to be in darkness and now you're in light. It's interesting. He says you were darkness and now you are light, like personified. You are dark. You were darkness. You are light. This is who you are. Jesus himself said that, right? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, right? You are light now. This is who you are. Why? Because you are in Christ. I want to point out to you that, that important little phrase, in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. Once again, we have an expression here of the doctrine of union with Christ. Because we're united to Christ by faith, we have this new fundamental identity. We're not darkness anymore. Now we're light in the Lord. Right? God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He made us his very light. It's our union with Christ that empowers us and inclines us, even gives us the desire to abstain from the deeds of darkness that once held such sway over our hearts. So, fact, you are light in the Lord. Call, walk as children of light. It's the very next thing he says, right? At one time you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is be who you are. Live like your identity in Christ. He has made you this. He has declared this of you. He's given you this new life, this new man. Now live in it. Walk in it. Carry it out. Walk as children of light. Well, what, is, what does it mean to walk as children of light? Paul, what will that sort of life look like? And he gives us, in answer to that question, a new triad. We had the triad of perversion at the beginning, sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. And then we had the triad of, of improper speech with uh, filth, filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. Well, he gives us now a new triad to replace it when he describes the, 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 the light that we're to live in. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That's the triad to pursue and to cultivate, to build on. Whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is honorable, whatever is true. Remember those words of Paul. Think on these things. Remember that this image of, or this new man, he told us in chapter 4, verse 24, has been made, been created in the likeness of God, created in the image of God. And that is defined by true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is the character of God. That is the way that God is. He lives in light. He is totally pure and righteous and holy. And he calls us to be the same. He's given us his very life. 
And now he says, you, focus on what's good and what's right and what's true. So cultivating the fruit of light means instead of filthy talk, let's give thanks. Cultivating the fruit of light means instead of partnering with those who live in these ways and teach in these ways, we reject those false teachings and live out of our new identity as light in the Lord. Cultivating the fruit of light means pursuing and and building on goodness and rightness and truth. And the final thing he tells us about cultivating the fruit of light is to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is very similar to Romans 12, verse 2, where Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word acceptable in Romans 12, 2 translates the same word that Ephesians 5.10 translates as pleasing. So if we're walking in the old man, if we're living according to the patterns of darkness, who are we trying to please? Ourselves. If we're walking in the new man, and we're walking according to the, the fruit of light that he's given us, who are we trying to please now? The Lord. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. There's only two ways to do this. Number one, we have to know what God commands. We have to know the moral commands of God in his word. What does he call good? What does he call evil? And we should agree with him, right? People have a hard time with that these days. If they see something in the Bible and they don't like it, they go, eh, I don't trust the Bible, right? So we just point fingers and say, ah, the Bible is old and Written by a bunch of dead white guys. I've heard that. I'm like, what? No, but okay. Um, anyway, so the Bible isn't trustworthy, right? We disagree with the Bible. I just disagree with you. No, nope. when God calls something good in the Bible, we agree with him. When God calls something evil in the Bible, we agree with him. That's evil. And then we try to pursue it, right? We, we try to live in light of those Command. So we have to know the moral commands of God in his word. And the second thing is we have to commit to live by them. We have to decide I am going to the best of my ability by God's grace. And as my own understanding grows and increases and unfolds as I come to know his word better and know him better, I will live according to his commands. Benjamin Merkel says, to live according to that which is good, right, and true requires the practical wisdom of applying these ethical standards to particular circumstances. So there is wisdom necessary. The Bible won't tell us everything to do in every case, right? We have to take the truth of the Bible, the principles that the Bible gives us, and then apply them in our lives in particular situations. And that's going to take wisdom and I think that's where the word discernment comes in. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. It won't always be telegraphed to you. Go this way, not that way. Thanks, Lord. That makes it real easy. I don't think he always wants it to be easy. I think he wants us to, to cultivate that discernment. Abandon the works of darkness. Cultivate the fruit of light. And then finally, receive the light of Christ. 
receive the light of Christ. That's the, the third and final way in this passage that we learn to walk in love. Receive the light of Christ. Listen, Christ's light reveals truth. When Christ's purity shines upon our souls, all is laid bare and he sees what is really there. In John chapter 3, I started the message today by citing the prologue of John's gospel to you. If I could take you to John chapter 3 now to Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Of course, the, the, most, the very famous words in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And He goes on, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Look at this in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If we are living in unrighteousness and sin, then when the light of Christ shines, we want to run away. It's like flipping on a light in a roach motel. They all go scurrying, right? If we hide from his light, we stay in the dark. And wrath is coming. It's that simple. So Paul would have us here the holy spirit would have us here if we hide from the light of christ we stay in the dark we stay in the shadows the wrath of god is coming if we humble ourselves and accept his judgment of us and turn to him in repentance and faith he cleanses us and makes us new and paul quotes this verse from isaiah awake it's really a few verses it's probably, some, some commentators think this may have been an early hymn. Perhaps Paul wrote it himself, but it's based on several different portions of Isaiah. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The light of Christ is associated with resurrection for the ones who will welcome it. For the ones who, in humility, will welcome his judgment. And call on him for mercy. Only the light of Christ can uproot sin and plant righteousness. Right? Because what's in our hearts is sin. What's in our hearts is broken. What's in our hearts is against God. So the only way that righteousness can start to grow there is if we welcome the light of Christ into our hearts. If you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, believe on him today. Don't run from his light. Welcome it. Agree with him about your sin. Draw near to him that he might cleanse you and give you a fresh start with a new identity, a new purpose, a new future destination. Christians, you have to make daily decisions to live in light Instead of in the dark. Because the reality is sin grows in the shadows. What we keep hidden 
continues to grow. And you might succeed in hiding your sin from others, at least for a while. But nothing is hidden from the all-seeing eye of God. The pathway to forgiveness and holiness and peace with God is the painful path of exposure. Letting the light of Christ shine on our deeds of darkness. Don't struggle alone. Don't get comfortable with your sin. Heed the warning of the coming wrath. And taste the sweetness of Christ's life-giving light. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. And the final word here of application is that he calls us here to an uncomfortable task as his people. Because there's the personal application of how do I respond when the light of Christ shines, when God's word sheds light on my own heart or exposes my own sin. Do I welcome that? Do I run from it? But then there's how we as the people of God, the church of Christ, are to respond to the sin of others. And to engage with one another in, these, in the, the exposing of the deeds of darkness. Look at verse 11. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But with anything, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And so he actually calls us as his people to welcome the light of Christ into our own lives and allow his word to, to teach us and to correct us. And he calls us into the lives of one another to expose the deeds of darkness. These deeds of darkness, I think, are likely those committed by members of the Christian community who have wandered astray into sinful disobedience. And so the exhortation here is not, you know, go from door to door and gripe at your neighbors about their sin. I don't think that's what he's calling us to do here. Expose, I saw what you did, right? I'm exposing you, All right? That's, that's not the point. The point here is to play the role of a sanctifying agent in the lives of your fellow church members. To let the Lord use us in one another's lives to give and receive correction. When someone who professes Christ as Lord and purports to be a brother or sister in the faith, it is the responsibility of those who know him and who are covenanted with him to exhort him to abandon the deeds of darkness and return to the light of Christ. That's the part that believers are supposed to play in one another's lives. This is part of God's great wisdom in establishing the church. He knew that we would need the strength and faith of others on the journey to help hold us up when we're weak to call us to something higher, something better. And it's why a part of our practice as a Christian community is what we call church discipline. It's not punitive. It's not mean-spirited. We're not trying to embarrass somebody. We don't take some perverse joy in rubbing somebody's nose in their mistakes. That's not the point of it. It's love for Christ and his bride and love for our brother or sister that compels us to speak into their lives with hard truth and urge them to leave their sin and follow Christ. This is how we should be in one another's lives. Andrew Peterson has a song where he says this, When I lose my way, find me. When I loose love's chains, bind me. At the end of all my faith, to the end of all my days, when I forget my name, remind me. 
That's the role that God intends for us to play in one another's lives. Walk in love, abandon the works of darkness, cultivate the fruit of light, and receive the light of Christ. And indeed, shine the light of Christ upon your fellow brother and sister. May Christ grant us the strength, wisdom, and humility we need in order to carry out this important role in the lives of our fellow siblings in the Lord and to represent Jesus as his people in this world. Let's pray.